Hi there, just a quick note that if you're hearing this, it means you haven't yet upgraded to the Misfit feed. I encourage you to become a Misfit right now and immediately unlock every single full-length episode that I've ever done, and you can immediately start learning from some of the greatest entrepreneurs uh, in history. It is absolutely insane how much you can learn for such a small investment, but don't take my word for, for it. Uh, let me just read a couple of the testimonials for from Misfits. It says, I just paid for my first premium podcast subscription for Founders Podcast. Learning from those who came before us is one of the highest value, highest value ways to invest time. David does his homework and exponentially improves my efficiency by focusing on the most valuable lessons. Another person said, I stumbled upon this podcast. After one episode, I quickly joined the Misfit feed. Since $5 a month is the equivalent of a few cups of coffee for great detailed biographies on amazing leaders. I love the insights and thoughts shared along the way. David loves what he does and it shines through on the podcast. Definitely my go-to podcast now. And just one more before I get into today's preview. It is worth every penny. I cannot put into words how fantastic this podcast is. Just stop reading this and get the full access now. I agree with every single one of them, obviously. I hope you do as well. If you do, tap the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player or go to founderspodcast.com. It takes less than a minute to set up and you can start learning from some of the greatest minds in history. Perhaps the only thing about Milton Hershey that is absolutely certain is that he believed in progress. As an industrialist, a philanthropist, and a social engineer, he was always moving forward. For this reason, the advances made by his company were true to his spirit. In his rare moments of open reflection, Milton Hershey showed his greatest affection for the little fellows whom he hoped to save. Those were the children that he intended to rescue that came from fractured families. They were challenged by schoolwork. They knew loneliness, hunger, and want. In short, they were quite similar to the boy Milton Hershey had once been. His father had neglected him when he was young, never providing him any real security and comfort. His mother had struggled to feed her children. Milton had never been a good student. As an adult, Milton fulfilled his father's dream of success and acclaim by building a great industry. With the creation of his utopian town, he heeded his mother's admonitions about serving something higher than the accumulation of personal wealth. Then, when it came to consider his legacy, he invested his fortune with a poignant flourish. He would save himself symbolically by rescuing little boys in the straits he knew as a child, over and over again in perpetuity. That was an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Milton Hershey's Extraordinary Life of Wealth, Empire, and Utopian Dreams. Okay, so before I jump into the rest of the book, I got to tell you about this school that they're referencing, which is the Milton Hershey School. Milton Hershey had one of the most unique ideas that I've ever come across in all the books that I've read for this podcast. And he didn't have any um, any biological children, so he decided to leave his assets. Uh, he starts this orphanage, this school for orphans, as they were just referencing, to help save the poorest and most disadvantaged people in his community, right? But what the unique part is he leaves... He sets up the Milton Hershey School Trust, which funds the school, right? And the Milton Hershey School Trust owns a controlling interest in the Hershey Company. Um, so at the time I'm recording this, they have like $12 billion in assets now because this has been compounding for over half a century. The, the school was founded in 1909. 
So to this day, it's considered one of the wealthiest schools in the world. So let me read this this highlight uh, from the book. And at the time, this book is published in 2005, so the numbers are a little different. I think at this time, they had an estimate like $5 billion in assets, something like that. But check this sentence out. This, this blew my mind. Remember, this is a school for poor young people. Only six universities held larger endowments, which meant that the Milton Hershey School was richer than Cornell, Columbia, or the University of Pennsylvania. And it's not just a school that's a unique idea. We'll see how he built his company today. But let me just read this paragraph because, it, again, this, this book is very unique. This, this person is very, very unique. It says, uh, M.S. Hershey inspired the kind of reverence because he had created not just a great business and an enormous charity, but a complete, prosperous, and self-sustaining community that reflected his idealistic attitudes about everything from commerce to education and architecture. So what they're talking about there is when he was building his chocolate factory, almost like Willy Wonka in, in the sense that he created his own world there. Um, he, this is Hershey, Pennsylvania, the small town that he builds. I remember at the beginning of that excerpt, it says he was a, an industrialist, a philanthropist, and a social engineer. The social engineering is the building of this town and this closed uh, ecosystem or closed economy, rather, um, that he created uh, around uh, his business. Okay, so I want to jump to his early life. I want to tell you about his father. Uh, one of my greatest fears in life, I would say, would be unrealized ambition. And Henry Hershey, Milton's father, was unrealized ambition personified. Uh, so it says, ambitious to a fault, he saw himself as a dramatic figure destined to do great things. He was so independent that he could walk away from his faith and his community without showing a single sign of self-doubt. Lack of formal education prevented him from becoming a writer, which was his first and greatest ambition. A little bit about his personality. In Henry Hershey, Fanny, which is Milton's mother, found a dreamer of the first order. His independence touched something rebellious in her. She was, she was a free thinker, too. Most of their families and the area they're in in Pennsylvania, uh, primarily the main occupation is farming. Uh, Henry hated that. Um, he, at this time, this is right around the Civil War and after Civil War, this is this, this giant uh, economic boom that is happening in America. And it's a sentence about uh, Henry seeing other ambitious people succeed in thing and having the ideas like, why not me? He says in Lancaster, Henry Hershey could see the magic that happened when ambitious men were armed with capital. Henry Hershey chafed at farm life and never looked into the distance for both an escape and a chance to make it big. He was a man of imagination. All he needed was a little inspiration. It appeared oozing out of the ground. So what they're talking about there is a giant oil boom that's happening in Pennsylvania, uh, in 1860s, the one that John D. Rockefeller was going to come and to monopolize. It says, while the earth was gushing money in the northern part of the state, Henry Hershey tried in vain to pull profits from a small farm that he had purchased. Given the result, it's hard to imagine he made much of an effort. And that's one of the biggest things I think that that Milton learned from his father and something that he avoided is uh, Henry had a, a thousand schemes and never stuck to any of them. He, he doesn't even know what the word perseverance meant. Uh, it says, just two months and two days after he acquired the place, Henry gave the property back to the seller and agreed to sell everything he owned to pay his creditors. A uh, public auction netted uh, just over $1,100. Within weeks, the Hershey's were on their way to Oil City. At this point, Milton is just a baby. And this is a great description of the mining fever that was taking place at this time. They were caught up in the peculiar dynamics of a mining fever. Whether it was gold in California, silver in Colorado, or oil in Pennsylvania, the scenario was the same. A big discovery drew hope-filled men to a desperate race for riches. 
While most were certain to fail, the real successes of the few kept hope alive for everyone else. It was hard to walk away when you believed that one more pan of gravel or hole in the ground could make you rich. Unfortunately, Henry does not succeed and says against the backdrop of of the excitement and steadily increasing number of productive wells, Henry Hershey's failures were that much more painful. He was fast running out of cash and Fanny was six months pregnant with their second child. That is actually going to be Milton's little sister who unfortunately dies, I think, of either typhoid fever or scarlet fever when she's about four years old. Um, now, this is the, as this is happening, Fanny's family, who were rather um, successful farmers, uh, successful for like the area they were, they were in, uh, decide to come. They see the living conditions, and they essentially rescue Fanny, and they bring everybody back to the farm. But before I get there, I want to tell you that the author does a great job of, of contrasting uh, Henry Hershey with John D. Rockefeller. So this is the difference between the two people. Uh, Rockefeller had arrived in Oil City in the same year as Hershey, 1860. But unlike Henry, he was possessed of extraordinary energy, remarkable financial savvy, and an uncanny ability to remain focused on his goals. So it's back to working on the farm uh, for the Hershey family. At this time, Milton's a small boy, so he's also working on the farm. It says Milton was introduced to fresh air and farm chores. He carried water, fed chickens, and collected eggs. More about his father, and I would say that Milton was the direct opposite of these traits. Uh, Henry's preference for talking about things rather than doing them. Even neighbors could see that the man was lazy. Henry farmed in his own peculiar, half-hearted way. So Henry's essentially half-assing his way through life. Eventually, uh, his wife is going to get sick of this. And at, at this time, and especially in their religion, they couldn't get divorced. But they live separately. They wind up living separately. And Fanny tells everybody that she's a widow. So that gives you an insight into how much uh, she detested her husband. This is a little bit more about Milton's childhood. Milton was denied the kind of stability children needed to feel secure. So this kind of gives you insights. And why would he leave one of the largest fortunes to a, you know, an orphanage, a school that he starts for, for poor uh, little boys? He had been moved from place to place, and he listened to his parents argue with, increasingly free, with increasing frequency and anger. Milton went without proper schools, and the little uh, family didn't have enough to eat. The pain of this life showed on his face, Milton's face, that is. Neighbors saw Milton as an overly serious child. And although Fanny and others, uh, although through Fanny and others, he learned to channel all of his energy and passions into a single outlet, work. So in this time of the story, his sister dies, his parents separate, and his father's farm fails. Um, but during this this probably described as the worst part of his life, he starts what will eventually be his life's work. And it's due in large part to his mother's guiding hand. Uh, She is trying to guide him to not be like his father. Uh, Not long after her, her daughter was buried, Fanny ceased talking about her. She also rejected Henry for good. As his wife turned away from him, Henry also suffered a big setback on the farm. Milton finished school for good in 1870 at age 12. After he gets out of school, his father tries to get him apprentice to a printer. Uh, so he's an apprentice for a printer who published a sm- uh, newspaper in a small town. Uh, Milton didn't like the print shop at all. And after a few months, he purposely let his hat fall into the press and he got himself fired. And this is where his mother steps in. Milton's next job would be one Fanny preferred at Lancaster Confectionery named Royer's Ice Cream Parlor and Garden. 
Fanny did not abandon her own desires for comfort and wealth. She would devote her time, energy, intellect, and labor to the only other male who might help her realize all her unexpressed ambition and pride, her son. So starting at 14 years old, Milton is going to find his life's work. He's going to work in this industry uh, till he dies. I think he dies around 87 years old. Um, and I would say the main takeaway, I'll tell you right up front, the main takeaway from this book, which I'll talk to you a lot about today, echoes that Steve Jobs quote that I always think about, where he says that, um, this is a direct quote from Steve, he says, I'm convinced about half of what separates the successful entrepreneurs from the non-successful ones is pure perseverance. And we're going to see that Henry Milton, or excuse me, Henry Milton, <laughs> Milton Hershey has perseverance in abundance. So before we get that, this is the benefits of uh, the apprenticeship. Joseph Royer was able to teach Milton much of what he knew, and the boy became both reliable and competent. He soaked in his employer's always please the customer philosophy and learned about buying ingredients, managing inventory, pricing goods, and handling employees. So Milton had a lot of ambition. He wasn't going to be satisfied just being uh, an apprentice for very long. But he's also uh, pushed again in a good direction uh, by a smart observation from his mother. So let me read this uh, to you. If these twin archetypes, heroic boy and great man of industry, weren't enough to make Milton Hershey chafe at the limits of apprenticeship, he also felt his mother's ambition. Early in his training, Fanny saw that candy, which had a long shelf life and came in many varieties, was the most promising of Royer's products. She visited the shop and paid Royer to excuse her son from his ice cream duties. He needed to learn all he could about the confections that would yield the greatest profit. Now a young man of 18, Milton was going to the big city to make his name and fortune. He knew a trade, confectionery, and its secrets. And that big city they're referencing is Philadelphia. Uh, he moves to Philadelphia. His mom and his aunt uh, help him set up shop. And it says young Milton Hershey. So this is actually, remember I just mem uh, mentioned that the main <laughs> takeaway from this book is the, the value of perseverance. This is the rise and fall of his first candy business. He has multiple failures. Uh, before he actually founds his first successful candy business. So this is the first one. Uh, young Milton Her Hershey could not have chosen a better time and place to put what he had learned from Joy Ro Joe Royer into a business of his own. Uh, so at this point, the centennial, so the 100-year anniversary of the founding of America is happening, and they have this gigantic like exhibition and fair that's taking place in Philadelphia. Um, so to some degree, he opens at the right time in the right place because 10 million people are going to visit the Centennial Exposition. Um, and this is at a time when the total American population just was just 46 million people. So it's, it's, it's an insanely uh, high percentage of the total Americans that actually come and visit Philadelphia at this time. And this is his, his shop is going to be right down the street from where this is happening. Uh, so it says the Centennial would bring in nearly $38 million, so that's the equivalent of $700 million in $2005, to Philadelphia. A flood of cash so huge that even a novice shopkeeper would have had a really uh, would have to try really hard to fail. A great deal of that money rested in the pockets and purses of people who passed his shop on their way from the fairgrounds to Independence, to Independence Hall and the city center. So during the celebration, he has a huge boom. Surprisingly enough, even after uh, the celebration's over, his business is still growing temporarily. Uh, depressing as the post-centennial scene may have been, commerce in the city did not crash. Milton Hersey's business kept growing. He opened a wholesale shop in another part of town and moved the retail store a few doors down the street to a larger place. In 1877, his mother and his 
uh, aunt arrive to add their unpaid labor to the boys' promising new business. Fanny, Maddie, that's his aunt, and Milton worked long hours making and wrapping candies that were sold wholesale to other shops and retail. But at this point in the story, things start to go uh, bad. He re- they realize they have a, another Me Too product. Uh, this is what I mean by that. Things began to go awry in late 1879 and early 1880. He faced intense competition from literally hundreds of other other candy retailers and wholesalers in the city. So yeah, he has a trade. Yeah, he knows the secrets of the industry. Uh, yeah, he's already worked it by this time. Almost, let's see, his business fails, I think he's 24. So he's working in the industry for almost a decade uh, up until this point. But he doesn't find success until he actually innovates in the industry. So this was actually surprising to me. So the reason that Hershey chocolate was so successful is because Milton Hershey actually innovated. At the time that in, in history that we're talking about, milk chocolate was considered a luxury. It was sold by Swiss chocolatiers as a luxury. And what Milton did is do a lot of experiment, experimentation and then innovation in uh, the actual mass production of chocolate. He made it affordable to everybody where you could buy it for a nickel. So that is the, the innovation that he builds his entire empire on. But that's going to take place like 15 years into the future from where we're at. So let me finish this section up real quick. Uh, they were describing the, the, the financial problems they're having as a result of all this competition. It says, money seems to disappear like magic with us. Milton made it clear that he could no longer pay his bills and was about to lose his credit with suppliers. Caught in the web of family animosities and burdened with the pressures of a failing business, so what they're meaning there is they kept having Fanny has successful um, family members, uh, siblings if I'm not mistaken, and they keep lending them a couple hundred bucks here and there. And then eventually they can't even pay them back. So that's what they're talking about, the family animosity. And burdened with the pressures of a failing business, Milton fell ill. He spent most of the next month in bed. No matter how hard Milton Hershey worked, he couldn't balance the, the expense of making his products with the slow pace of payments from his wholesale customers and the tight credit, credit terms demanded by his main supplier, the Franklin Sugar Company. So that's an important... Uh, part actually that he's learning is that he's being squeezed. He, he Later on in life, he realizes, hey, if there's something, and we've seen this over and over and over again, almost every story, if something is important to your business, you must control it. In the case of making uh, candy, chocolate, obviously sugar is going to be a huge, uh, is going to be of huge importance. And so later in life, he goes down to Cuba and he starts his own sugar plantations. Um, and he does this, I think, with every single ingredient ex- that he needs except coca, which is, I think, a lot harder to actually farm. So it says, at 24, Milton Hershey had invested the first six years of his adult life in a business that failed. He had driven himself mercilessly, trying to prove he deserved the faith and financial backing that he had received from Maddie, his mother, and their brothers. He had practically ignored the young women of Philadelphia and enjoyed little of what the vibrant city had to offer. So he's got to pack up. He's got to go back to a small town. This gives you, the sentence gives you an idea of the despair that a young adult could have. Just had a huge failure. Doesn't know what to do with his life. He would have time to reflect on the experience. So he starts wandering all over the country. At this time, his father's trying to be, trying to be like a successful miner in Colorado. So he's not sure what to do with his life. He decides just to wander the country looking for work. Um, and this results in a very valuable idea. So it says, the experience in the back alley had almost no real value when, when compared to what he had learned while working in that Colorado candy shop. So he gets a job at another candy shop. What they're talking about there is that experience in the back alley. He went looking for work, and at the time, uh, young young boys um, 
would uh, apply for jobs and it'd be like there would be like a it'd be a fake business they would kidnap the boys or and sell them off as like slave labor so he almost gets caught this he almost this almost happens to him luckily he had a, his own gun and so when the guy wouldn't open the door he flashed the gun and the guy said okay get out of here and so he, he wind up uh, surviving and not being sold into slavery essentially uh, so he winds up working at the Colorado candy shop now what was also surprising to me was that Hershey Chocolate, what he's best well known for, is not his first successful candy business. Um, This is going to be his first successful candy business. Let me read to you the idea that he learned in the Colorado candy shop. The Denver recipe for caramel, which yielded a vastly superior candy, was not under any copyright or patent. It would be his advantage in a new business. So his simple idea is, hey, it's really popular in the Western states at this time. They're selling these caramels that don't go bad. They taste really well. They figured out through through trial and error um, how to make a, a product that, that you could store on shelves, shelves that tastes good um, and that people liked. That was not happening where he was from in the East. So he's like, wait, I'm going to take this idea in the West and I'm going to go back and build my own caramel empire in the East. And this is what he does. He winds up selling a very successful caramel business, I think for over a million dollars in the 1800s. And he uses that money to start Hershey. So he takes the the idea from Denver, decides, hey, I'm not going to go back to Philadelphia. I tried it there. Let me go to New York. And there's a lot more activity and economic opportunity for me. And I'm going to do something different. I'm going to start off small and slow, which I think is another good idea. Nothing in Milton L. Hershey's New York adventure suggests that he ever intended to join the mass market pioneers. So there's at this time, there's a lot of companies that are still around today and they're mass marketing food, uh, like packaged food for Americans to buy. So think of like Campbell's Soup, Heinz Ketchup, that kind of stuff. Um, and so they're having a lot of financial success by figuring out ways to turn what you know used to be where everything you ate was came within close proximity to where you lived and was made by people like you knew who was making the food it's like more of an artisan like farming kind of uh um economy where now these these companies are set up and he's going to do the reason i'm bringing this up is because he does the same exact thing in chocolate He's going to figure out how to mass produce chocolate and make it affordable to the average person, which taking what was at one time a luxury good and turning it into something that's that's available to everybody. And in that sense, there's a lot of parallels between what he's doing here and what Henry Ford did with autos. Uh, but we're not there yet. So let me go. Uh, Milton intended to stay small, making candy to sell retail and wholesale on the island of Manhattan. And so let me interject before I go back into that. So he's starting his business in New York, but at the same time, he's reading about and experiencing there's a lot of squalor and a lot of poor, destitute children at the time. So this is where not only does he have ideas for the business he's building, but he also has, we see the first glimpse of his intense desire to help poor orphans. And he has ideas, the social engineering ideas on how to redesign a city. Uh, so it says Milton Hershey passed through the places that this columnist uh, revealed in his columns. This person um, was just writing about all the plight, about you know fifty thousand poor children in the city, et cetera, et cetera. So he's he's seeing some of this as he's going around and making wholesale deliveries. The experience would affect him for the rest of his life and contribute to his eventual decision to found one of the nation's great charities. It also formed the foundation of a critique of urban life that he expressed later on. Cities never seem natural to me, he said, and I never learned to like them. Like it or not, the biggest city in America was the place where Milton would begin to get his business right. In New York, the quality of Hershey's products and the scale of his operation were well matched to the market. 
And unfortunately, as he's making progress, this business is also going to fail. He's derailed by his father. So his, his father would show up every time Milton was making a little bit of money. And he'd have like these grand ideas, right? No, oh, I'm not a miner. Maybe I'll be a painter. Now he's like, hey, let's mass produce cough drops. And he talks his only son into fronting the, the money, the money Milton didn't have. And this was a failure. But at the same time, it was important that this happened because he's also doing exactly what you and I are doing right now. He, he's studying and learning from successful entrepreneurs, and he steals an idea from competitors that, that are going to beat him right now, but he's going to use in the future for Hershey. Uh, so it says, this is where his father talks him into mass-producing cough drops. Hershey's cough drops were supposed to tap the enormous winter market for sore throat lozenges. The problem was New York already had a favorite, favorite brand. Uh, these simple black or red sugar lozenges the Smith Brothers cough drops were one of the first trademarked products in America. William and Andrew Smith had begun making them in Poughkeepsie in 1847. So that's what they had about a 30 year head start on, on the Hershey cough drops. The eccentric bearded brothers who used their profile portraits as a trademark developed an early method for mass production. This is really interesting, actually. The drops were made from huge batches of syrupy liquid that was boiled, cooled into a solid, and then cut. The cut pieces were then dumped into five-gallon milk pails. Wagons took the pails to homes, apartments, and farms where families worked to put the drops in paper boxes. So essentially, they're working from home instead of having a centralized factory for people to put all this together, right? Um, at the height of winter production, some people in Poughkeepsie might have gotten the impression that half the population was up nights boxing cough drops. Uh, by paying low wages and manufacturing their product in a low-cost area, a strategy Milton Hershey would one day copy, the Smith brothers defeated all their competitors. They would also overpower Milton uh, and H Henry Hershey, who were not able to mount a credible challenge to the Smiths. Unfortunately, the bet that he had made on cop drops was more costly than he would have anticipated. By the summer of 1886, he was unable to pay ten the $10,000 he owed to the company that had supplied him with the equipment he had bought to make Henry's drops. Jesus, terrible. Milton closed the shop, created his machinery, and moved back home. Okay, so this may be the most important part of the book. I have a lot of highlights on this section. I'm going to read my note notes to you before I read uh, the highlights. And there's this great quote I heard recently. I don't know who said it, but it said, Bouncing back from defeat is essential for growth in any endeavor. Okay? And it's important to understand that quote because that's exactly what's happening in the life of Milton Hershey. There's also something freeing. He says, essentially what Milton is saying here, I'm at rock bottom. I, but he's not, you know, you're going to be somewhat depressed and, uh, and obviously downtrodden. But there's also something freeing about that because he realizes I can only go up from here. It can't get worse than this. It was not a glorious homecoming. Hershey was so broke that he had turned to that he had to turn to his old friend to pay the railroad to release the crates that he had shipped home. Though he was only 28, the stress of two big failures made him look older. Okay, so this is what I mean about perseverance is the main theme of and the, the life story of, of Milton Hershey. He's been working in this industry for 14 years. He now has two fit gigantic failures. He's borrowed money from friends. From everybody he possibly can. He's tapped out. He's embarrassed. He's a failure. And yet he doesn't quit. 14 years since he became the apprentice confectioner, Milton Hershey was still infected with his mother's high expectation and his father's dreamy ambition. He carried both of these burdens. 
Given family ties and their past support, Milton would set aside his embarrassment and ask for one more loan. If failure is the best instructor, he could argue that he had earned a doctorate. He intended to make candy no one else produced in the East, Denver-style caramel. So this is where, again, the first time he made a bunch of Me Too candy, then anybody can do that. So he had a bunch of competitors, and what happens in a competitive market? Profits are eliminated, right? The second time he goes to a bigger city, but he and he's doing well, but he's not doing his the, the Denver-style caramels yet, and he gets sidetracked by his father. Now he's like, all right, I have a better idea. I'm going to make something that you can only get from me. And this is the, his, the third attempt at building a successful business. This business is going to succeed. That's why it's such an important thing to remember. Bouncing back from defeat is essential for growth in any endeavor. We're seeing this in his life. Hershey's uncles and his aunt heard him out and then turned him down. Listen to this. They had finally decided that that he was too much Henry Hershey's son. And they wouldn't risk any more money on his dreams. For the first time in his life, Milton Hershey was without the support of his family. But as much as he may have felt adrift and alone, Milton had been liberated too. Years later, he would say that he realized he had become like his father, a black sheep in the eyes of his family. This rejection was a great motivator. Alone in a rented room at a warehouse, Milton began to make candy. He sold it himself from a handbasket on the the streets of Lancaster. This is Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania. He did well enough to buy a push cart and then move to a larger space. Uh, in the space, in the new space, Hershey had the room to make his special caramels on a large scale. But before he could start, he needed seven hundred dollars to buy equipment. He decides to go to a local bank, and this this is just wild. What's going to happen here? Lancaster County National Bank, which had done substantial business with his relatives in the past, gave Milton Hershey a ninety-day loan. Now, here's the problem. He's got only 90 days to, to pay back this loan. But also, this is a tiny town. There's only 30,000 people. So the market's really, really small. And he may have never got off the ground if it wasn't for a lucky break. There was a candy retailer that just happened to be visiting and and uh, sampled some of uh, Milton's caramel and decided, hey, I'm going to do a huge order, but I need you to ship them to London for me. Um, so he's like, okay. I can maybe use this contract as a way to uh, to convince the bank to loan me more money. And this is the wild part. With the wholesale contract in hand, he went to the bank to ask for more time to repay, to repay the $700. He also requested an additional $1,000 to fill the big order. Um, he spoke with a junior officer named Frank Brenneman. And this is also, you know, Milton does something smart here. He just lays everything on the table. I'm not going to hide anything from you. This is the truth. Are you going to bet on me or not? Hershey came down and said, this is, uh, this is somebody else retelling the story many years later. Hershey came down and said, I can't pay you. I want you to come uh, come up and see. I have material and merchandise. Let me show you what I have. Uh, the guy's name is Brenneman. Brenneman went up. Afterwards, he told me it was not imposing. This is Brenneman describing the early um, business, Milton's business at the time. Uh, the dust, the dirt, and the racket in the wagon maker's shed. His mother and, and aunt were the only employees, and they were they were sitting there wrapping caramels. Brenneman went on to say, I don't know what to do. Brenneman was impressed by Hershey's honesty. He hadn't tried to exaggerate his little firm's potential, and he made it clear that his future depended on the success of that single export contract. This is the the wild part. Mr. Brenneman told me, I told Hershey to come back the next day. I walked the floor debating whether I would take the chance. He had told me all. He didn't conceal the bad part. He made no excuses for it. He was honest. I decided I would lend him the money. 
Now, here's the crazy part. But I was afraid to present the bank that note with that story. To avoid the trouble, I put my own name on the note. The banker takes out the loan for Milton in his name. Thanks for making it to the end of this preview. If you want to continue listening to the full episode, you'll need to upgrade to the Misfit feed. By upgrading, you'll get access to every full episode that I've ever done. These episodes are available nowhere else. And as a bonus, you also get lifetime access to my notebook that contains key insights from over 285 podcasts and lectures on entrepreneurship. As a way to illustrate why it is so important for you to learn the lessons from all the biographies that I analyze on the Misfit feed, I have some quotes that I've collected from other people who have discovered the value in reading biographies, and they explain to you and I why this activity is so valuable. So the first quote comes from the founder of Shopify, Toby Luke and he says, Books are the closest you will ever come to finding cheat codes for real life. You can access the entire learnings of someone else's career in a few hours. This quote from Mark Andreessen on why he reads biographies. There are thousands of years in history in which lots and lots of very smart people worked very hard and ran all types of experiments on how to create new businesses and invent new technology. They ran these experiments throughout their entire lives. At some point, somebody put these ideas down in a book. For very little money and a few hours of time, you can learn from someone's accumulated experience. There is so much more to learn from the past than we often realize. You could productively spend your time reading experiences of great people who have come before you and learn every time. And finally, this quote from the book, The Tao of Charlie Munger, on why Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have both read hundreds of biographies in their lifetime. Reading personal biographies allows ones to experience multiple lives and successes and failures. Reading business biographies allows one to experience the vicissitudes of a business and learn how problems were solved. Both Charlie and Warren are copious readers of personal and business biographies. So upgrade now by tapping the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player or going to founderspodcast.com.